Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Hey, welcome back to Abstract. This is a crazy jam-packed episode. There is so much that we discuss. There are so many different kinds of terms. I don't want to drop all of them right now. You're going to have to listen to catch all of it. But just to give you a quick overview, on today's episode, we discuss myrmecology, which is the study of ants, sociobiology, comparing humans and ants, this concept of eusociality, or this kind of highest level of sociality. All of this comes back to the idea of nature being very complex, and all throughout the episode we're drawing parallels between complexity in humans, the human brain, the human form, to that of ants. So let's get into it. This is a super fun one. I hope you enjoy. Angeli Vasquez is a Colombian biologist. Currently, she's doing her doctorate in biology at McGill University. Her major interest relies on understanding the evolution and development of complexity in nature. Thus, her research focuses on discerning the social organization in ants, especially the diversification of a single worker group into a complex system of morphological and behavioral subgroups. From collecting ants in the tropical forest in Panama to using molecular and genomic tools in the lab, she integrates ecology, comparative phylogenetic methods, and developmental biology. Aside from her research, she enjoys outdoor activities that involve exploring nature, and she also participates in outreach activities surrounding her research, primarily in Panama and Colombia. It's a pleasure to have her on the podcast today, so without further ado, Anjali, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. This is very exciting. You are the first Colombian to be on the podcast, so congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. Hopefully the first of many. Were you So you were born in Colombia and then you moved here recently? Yeah, I was born in Colombia, Medellin, and I moved to Panama for two years. And after I moved here to, to Montreal in 2017. Mm-hmm. Specifically to start your PhD. Yes. Okay, that's awesome. What kind of academic experience did you have before you moved here? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I really wanted to be a scientist, let's say when I was 13, 14. Mm-hmm. So I pursued biology in Colombia. I started like interested in organisms and trying to understand nature. And we during my bachelor, I was focusing a lot in field biology, which is mostly going to the forest, exploring nature, understanding life organization in the forest. And as you know, Colombia is the second most diverse country in the world. So talking about forests, we are talking about a huge diversity. So I I become very connected with with nature. So after that, I moved to Panama to do two internships and the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. 
is the biggest tropical institute in the world. So the, this is part of the Smithsonian in Washington. So they have this institution in Panama where they focus only in tropical studies from very different lines of research. So I had the opportunity to work with these, trying to understand the pheromones and social organization of these. So mm -hmm. during the time I was there, I realized that McGill has this program which is called Neotropical Auction. That program basically is that the students from McGill, they do research in the tropics, mostly Latin American countries. So I had the opportunity to meet my advisor there because he was giving a lecture. So I mm -hmm. pursued a PhD with him. And now I basically started my four year of this like long journey in biology. Wow, so this is your fourth year in your PhD. So you're basically nearing the end. Yes, uh, two years left, let's say. Okay. You mentioned that you wanted to be a scientist from a very young age. Yes. Did you always know you wanted to be a scientist focusing on the, the natural environments you were surrounded by growing up? Yes, because I also uh, grew up in the countryside. So uh -huh. my, 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 father, my father is a farmer, so I was kind of in the nature side of the city. So I always was surrounded by nature. So I was kind of connected from the beginning to this kind of environment. And that's why I, I decided to, to keep going in this path. That's awesome. I'm glad that you've built upon this kind of natural propensity to love nature. And you've now created a whole academic and potentially career path for yourself studying it. That's, that's awesome. You said you were working with bees before, right? Yes, I did an internship, like say one year, yeah. working with bees. I was working with a PhD student from Cornell University in Panama. Yeah. So that was my first connection with social organisms. So what was the biggest takeaway from that project you worked on? What did you find out about bees that maybe you didn't expect to find or what really blew you away? Well, I, I was doing a lot of behavior experiments and to trying to extract pheromones and characterize the pheromones from workers and queens. But I was kind of trying to integrate more because if you want to understand the complexity of a system, you need to integrate several fields. You cannot just focus on one. So mm -hmm. I was always trying to find that way that I could integrate different fields to answer big questions. So I, I found my advisor, like he was working with social insects, something I really found amazing because they are so complex. Plus that he was using this integrative framework. So that's why I basically decided to move on with ants, which are in the same line of social systems, but they are a bit more complex. And to study those systems, you need to really integrate different fields. So that's why I really wanted to find this kind of integrative approach. Could you tell us what some of these domains are that, that come together in the integrated approach? Yeah, it's called the field Eco-Evo-Divo, which integrates ecology, development, and evolution. So for me, it was very important this because ecology talks about interactions in nature. So how important organisms, because organisms are not in a bubble, organisms are interacting with a whole ecosystem, so is ecology is that, like looking those interactions, trying to understand how those environmental interactions and also interactions with other organisms affect the development and how the development generates these different traits 
that they can be adapted and they can have a very important evolutionary meaning for the organisms. So it's kind of integrating evolution, development, and ecology. Now that you're working with ants, you're still able to apply this integrated approach with these three different domains. It's not that I'm able, it's that we have to. Ants are so complex that just focusing on one of them, you're missing a whole understanding of how the system behaves and evolves and everything. So it's kind of the necessity to do it. So that's why we integrate those fields to have the whole system, no matter what your questions are. So I don't want to force you into telling us your biases here, but I'm just going to go for it. Is there one of these three domains that you particularly enjoy focusing on, whether it's evolution or development or ecology? Well, I will say because I, my, my formation was mostly ecology and evolution, so I enjoy those two things a lot. But now that I'm getting more into the developmental field, it's also very exciting. So it's kind of like we cannot have one without another one. So it's, they, they need to be together. What happened with ants, for example, is that they, they are very sensitive to the environment and their social organization depends on temperature, nutrition, a lot of things. So if we want to understand what's going on in development, we need to understand what's going on, what's happening with nutrition. Or we need to understand how the system evolves, or basically how was the history of those species. If we want to know why they develop in that way or how they respond in that way to, the, to these environmental inputs. Now that I'm in my fourth year of PhD, I'm enjoying the three fields a lot. It sounds like this field is very well suited to you. So I'm glad that you found it. <laughs> And that it found you, in a sense. You mentioned social organization and how there are these factors like temperature and nutrition that come into play. I love that, you, that, that you're studying insects. I think it's beautiful. I have a bit of background studying humans. I find humans particularly interesting and also quite complex. So I'm curious to know, by virtue of studying ants or insects, have you gained insights into human behavior by studying them? Tell yes. me everything you know about the relationship between ant behavior and human behavior. I want to learn about myself through the ants, through you. That's great. When you study ants, the field is called myrmecology. So not many people know about it. People just call us entomologists. Mm -hmm. But the, the father of the myrmecology field, which is Edward Wilson, he's still alive. He's professor at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. He created this field called sociobiology, trying to link ants with humans. And it's still a debate because humans and ants, they can be similar in many features, but also they differ a lot. Ants, for example, they are eusocial organisms, which is mean the highest level of sociality, which uh, we have organisms that they don't reproduce. They can have the potential to do it, but they cannot do it and we have a group of individuals that they can reproduce. That doesn't happen in humans. So that is one of the main differences. So mm -hmm. The second difference in social animals, the adults never leave the colony. So they keep the group as a unit. They're gonna work for the group. And the adults take care of the newborns. Those are the three main pictures of eusociality. That, that's why we call ants eusocial organisms. But in humans, we don't follow those features as those animals do. And also the altruism level of ants is very high. If they had to die for the colony, they will die. 
in humans, we still don't have that level of cooperation or altruism. We're still a little mm. bit individualistic in many right. aspects. There are many things that we kind of correlate each other, which is division and labor. But still, ants are more, <laughs> I would say the ants are models for us to learn many kind of behaviors. And people have been doing that. People have been using ants to see how they solve obstacles. So when you are basically in a traffic event, how humans can coordinate each other to solve the problem of be able to circulate because ants, they do that very well. And the fact that they do that very well is because they, they are able to coordinate between them, something that we are missing a bit. We're going to take a quick break. And during this break, I'll be reading from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Today, it's going to be book three, passage one. If we live longer, can we be sure our mind will still be up to understanding the world, to the contemplation that aims at divine and human knowledge? If our mind starts to wander, we'll still go on breathing, go on eating, imagining things, feeling urges, and so on. But getting the most out of ourselves, calculating where our duty lies, analyzing what we hear and see, deciding whether it's time to call it quits, all the things you need a healthy mind for, all those are gone. So we need to hurry. Not just because we move daily closer to death, but also because our understanding, our grasp of the world, may be gone before we get there. So all this to say, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you for taking the time now, while your mind is still sharp, to learn about the wonderful world of insects. Now, back to the episode. So if ants are highly evolved social beings, or as you call them, eusocial organisms, do ants have brains like humans have brains? My expertise is not in brain development, but there are many people studying brain, and there are similarities between brain in ants and in humans, and it's because living in a group changes the, the conformation of the brain. Because we think as a group, even humans, I mean, we are social. Mm -hmm. And that shapes the way of how we think. And that happens in ants too. The development of the brain and the evolution of the brain was based on the group. So there are similarities for sure, but still there are many differences as well. So why have we developed a sense of individualism and they haven't? And what is the benefit maybe or the drawback of that fact? Well, I think because they are in this high level of sociality, they, they are called super organisms. And I think that happens because the reproductive division of labor. The fact that some individuals cannot reproduce, that forces them to stay in the colony. Whereas we have the potential of reproduce ourselves and survive without the, our parents or without the group, basically. But ants cannot do that. If you take a worker that is a sterile, it, it cannot reproduce, the worker cannot do anything by itself because it's gonna die. I mean, the sense of nature of, of evolution and everything is reproduction and survival. That, that's the main force controlling the group level on those social organisms. But in humans, we don't have it because we, we are social, but at the same time, we have the ability to reproduce and survive independent of our sisters or siblings. So mm -hmm. that keeps us kind of independent in that way. And still, we, we need the group, 
But in evolution, how the systems evolve is because some individuals could not reproduce anymore, so they had to stay in the group, even if they wanted to live. So do ants struggle with their lack of independence? Like, do they feel tension? Are they conflicted? I'd imagine many people, like I'm, I'm talking humans, would go nuts if they literally couldn't leave their home because it threatened their survival. There are cases in ants that they want to kill the queen. There are forces in the group, in, the, in those eusocial organisms, that are trying to dissociate the group and that happens, despite that they are very, they are in this high level of sociality. Still, we have those kind of behaviors that they can affect the the group. But I mean, the major explanation for that is that that they, the fact that some individuals cannot reproduce, they cannot lead by themselves. What are some of the catalysts for these uprisings against the queen? Why does that happen? So it means that despite the evolution of, of this characteristic that is non-reproductive, reproductive individuals, they still can have the potential to try to reproduce and that can produce these behaviors against the queen. That's why ants on ants have all this very huge difference between queen and workers, for example. Queens can live up 30 years, workers can just, can just survive for six months. Mm-hmm. That allows the queen to keep the power. And it seems the queen can control the survival of the workers. So this is a very interesting topic. It happens, but it still is, is rare. It's not like something frequent. So what happens when the queen dies? So workers, uh, they, they, it's called policing. So the workers start fighting each other and the stronger the strongest one take over the colony. But the problem with workers is this. The workers, they don't reproduce, or they, the workers cannot lay eggs unless they have a male around to reproduce with. The workers, they don't mate sexually. They lay eggs that are males. This is a very crazy story, but in ants, the females are deployed and the males are haploid. Just for the listeners, could you just quickly describe what haploid and diploid mean? Deploy means that they, they got one package of chromosomes from mother and from father, another mm-hmm. one. So they had two copies of the same gene, one from the mother, one from the father. Haploid is that they just have one package of chromosomes. So in ants, all the individuals are female. So that means that they are deployed. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. There are no such thing as male ants? Yes. The colony, once per year, produces male larvae. How? Oh, that's programmed. That's genetically programmed. Because, I mean, they had to do it, right? They they produce reproductives. Also, they produce princes because they had to fly out. And they had to... Because, I mean, the ants, they need to make generations to be able to keep the gene pool in nature. So what they do is once per year, or maybe twice, they produce reproductive babies. They develop into reproductives, males and females. They develop wings because they had to fly out of the colony and reproduce and establish a new colony. So hold on a second. This is crazy. So for the vast majority of the time, a colony is basically just made up of females who are either workers or there's one kind of alpha female 
who is the queen. So there are no males until all of a sudden they just decide that they want to create a male. Like how do they how do they will a male ant into existence? That's program. That also has to be related with seasonality, nutritional inputs. So they pro the queen lakes reproductive eggs. Those individuals or larvae, they develop into reproductives. They develop wings, something that doesn't happen in workers because that's another strategy. I mean, workers develop wings, they're gonna escape the colony. So we have to keep the workers link in the colony. So the, the reproductives develop wings, they undergoing adult stage, they fly out of the colony. Males are looking for other females from other colonies because they cannot breed within the same colony because they are brothers and sisters. They're just looking for other queens flying around because that happens at once for all colonies. So you see in the reproductive season of ants, you see many, many reproductives flying around. People even don't know that those are ants because people sometimes, they don't know that the reproductives develop wings. For you, it's not common that ants have wings, but queens and, and males, they, they develop the wings to be able to fly, mate, and establish a new colony. That's how a colony basically born. So that, that explains why if a worker kill the queen and take over the colony, that worker is not gonna be able to lay diploid eggs. So when that happens, the only gender that is gonna be produced is males. So that's not gonna help to the colony anyway. So when, if the queen dies, it's very, very rare that a colony lead by a worker is gonna survive for too long. Probably that colony is gonna die. That's why those kind of behaviors are not favored by selection because that doesn't help to the colony to survive. So that's why those kind of behaviors mm. are very rare. Because okay. those workers have the potential to reproduce once the queen is dead, but they are just going to lay males and that's not going to help at all because males in a colony are just useful for reproduction. Even males, they just survive for two months because after reproduction, the males are not useful anymore. So they die. Yeah, that's, that's kind of That's another similarity between ants and humans. Males, <laughs> just useless, honestly. Keep them around for a couple of months and then toss them. Well, but, but without males, basically, we won't have ants around because they are sexual. So they yeah. need the males anyway. But in terms of labor and work, males are just made for reproduction. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that things all kind of came together here with that last comment. Because I, I had asked the question a little earlier about, you know, why is it that we have these uprisings? And, well, they do happen, but they're very rare, like you said, because... They haven't been allowed to really evolve to become natural because all the colonies that that happened in died promptly. So that's great. So we've spoken about sociality. We've spoken about reproduction. Are there other domains as well of ant life that you are specifically focusing on that are of note besides reproduction and sociality? Yes, and that's part of my, my PhD project, which is the devolution of worker castes. Okay, and a caste is a what? Okay, a cast, that's, that's very interesting. A cast is something that is morphologically, behaviorally, and physiologically different. 
So you know queen is different than workers because mm -hmm. you, I mean, you notice morphology and everything and also physiology because queens are made for reproduction, workers for foraging and other activities. But in ants, we had the evolution of the worker caste. So it's called also worker subcaste because within the worker caste, we have individuals that they differ morphologically and behaviorally. And these are not different species. These no. are just different, like just physically different versions of the same species. Exactly, morphologically. Okay. And this is part of one of the major transitions in the evolution of ants. And there's something that makes ants special because we have this worker subcast that is part of the evolution of a specialization of labor or task. So we have workers and soldiers, for example. So as the name tells you, soldiers are involved in defense and workers are involved in other kind of tasks like getting the food, taking care of the newborns. So this is a very interesting feature of ants because increasing the specialization of tasks allowed them to increase the efficiency and coordination and the, I mean, and having soldiers is part important of the colony because colony has enemies a lot. So they need those soldiers defending and kind of vigilance to keep the colony safe. And we have also workers that those are foragers. They had they had, they they obtain the food to feed the newborns and to feed each other. So that's part of of my research. And as you mentioned, this is physical because they had the same genome. They are sisters, and so they had the same genome. So those morphological differences arise by developmental mechanisms that are influenced by nutrition. And that's why I was telling you, ecology, development, and evolution plays a role here in understanding how those subcapsules develop and evolve. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet, so if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science, whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all from me for now. Let's head back to the episode. So in humans, of course, we don't have this kind of morphological difference. The only morphological difference that I could, I guess, recognize is that we have males and females that have, you know, generally at least somewhat different physical structures. I know, for example, that the which bone is it? Like the uh, coccyx, I think, is a little bit wider for women because they have to pass babies through their bodies, uh, for example, right? And generally men are maybe on average taller, for example. So those are kind of the morphological differences that I see. How drastic are these morphological differences in ants from one to the next? They are huge. I mean, you see the colony and you notice which group sees soldiers and workers because you notice the head. They have this disproportional head-body relationship that is the, the head is too big for a small body. And it's because they had the soldiers usually develop these big mandibles because their main feature is defense, so biting. Mm -hmm. So they had to develop huge mandibles, so they have a lot of muscle content in their head. 
whereas workers, they are kind of proportional, their head and the body, so you notice they are uh, different for that reason. But as you were saying about humans, we don't have these morphological differences, but we have a division of tasks. And that's something we are good at. We are good at the splitting tasks, and we have also soldiers <laughs> and workers. and We right. have a lot of tasks in humans, but we also have this kind of, we can say that we have division of labor too. But in ants, that is a very, is very morphological. But they are also behavioral. That's why we talk about specialization of labor, because their morphological difference follow the behavior also difference. Soldiers are behaving aggressively, whereas workers are like scared of everything and they are just worried about foraging and taking care of the newborns. I have a question that's maybe a little bit unrelated to the ecological nature of your research. The fact that the morphology or the physical nature of a given ant determines what its role is in the colony makes me question whether ants have free will or not. Have you ever wondered whether ants have free will or not? And what do you think about that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, so ants, we can both agree, do not have any free will. No. Do you think humans have free will? Neither. Interesting. You don't think humans have free will. Why not? I don't know. I mean, the, the meaning of having been in a group, in a society, talking about those concepts are, are very controversial because that restricts our... <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think it, it can be like that because we always had to think about others. So we always had to think about groups. So that also kind of restrict our individual freedom, I guess. Mm -hmm. We don't need to go too crazy down this path of free will. I know it's a little more of a philosophical debate and we can definitely get back to the matter at hand. I was just curious because it really does sound like this difference in terms of morphology defining your, your life applies way more to ants than it does to humans. But we also do see that, right? Like you wouldn't have someone become a firefighter if they were maybe five feet tall and had a very, you know, very petite physiological nature, right? Yeah, what I was telling you is like in ants, this, those are, this is more morphological, but in humans, it's also very depending on the context of the group. I mean, many of your decisions or behaviors, they de depends on people around you. So mm -hmm. it's kind of the same in ants. I mean, the fact that they have soldiers depends on the demands of the colonies or they had to produce soldiers. But when there are many soldiers, but no many workers, they have to produce workers. So that kind of also allows to, to make the correlation with humans. It's more like living in a group, it somehow restricts these decisions. I mean, we, we have to take decisions as a group. So mm -hmm. I think in humans happens too. So that influences a lot about like our, our choices, for example. That's fair. That's fair. I have just an insane number of questions that I'd love to ask you, but unfortunately, we don't have an infinite amount of time. Just to touch on something you mentioned earlier, you know, you said that you have these stronger ants that develop for defensive purposes, because there are wars that are waged between different colonies. Another question, maybe just because I'm, I'm very interested in how you kind of relate ant life to human life. Do you think it would be easier to mitigate war between ants or to mitigate war between humans? Oh, mitigate war between humans. Easier. Okay, so war is a more fundamental part of ant life than it is for humans. 
and is no negotiable. <laughs> okay. If they feeling they are being invaded or something, they are not gonna think twice about decisions. They will attack, and they don't care if they're gonna die. I mean, it's no negotiable. Okay. And you had mentioned as well earlier that there are maybe certain similarities between human brains and ant brains. How much? How much do you know about ant cognition? What it is that ants think about, and you know how they perceive their environment. Well, that's a good question. As I told you, that's not part of my research. But yeah. what we know so far is that the the fact that those are organisms living in society, they have this flexibility of changing behavior, solving problems. So their brain is kind of made for that because mm -hmm. they, they had to change many decisions. They had to deal with many situations. And it seems their brain was made to deal with this very unpredictable situation as a humans. And I know that they're like the most important part of their brain or like the evolution of the brain is basically the olfactory lobes. Mm -hmm. because they use a lot of chemical cues and so they had to be very uh, specialized, perceive different kind of chemical cues to know when it's danger, when it's food. And also, yeah, I know the visual, the visual development in the brain is also very important. But in, in similarity with humans, I would say that, I mean, they are very, their behavior is huge plastic. Behavior in general is plastic for uh, living organisms but uh, is, is higher in ants as a humans because they also take these unpredictable decisions, they change lifestyles, so they kind of in that way can be similar to humans in how they are very plastic in their behavior and the fact that they live in a group, many things mm -hmm. had to be through communication with others. So they had to develop flexible brain, I would say. Yeah. This plasticity, though, I guess the way that I see it being different from humans is that their behaviors are only modified by virtue of what their environment demands from them. Whereas humans, we can decide to affect change in and of ourselves because we have that individuality, right? Exactly. And, and yeah, and the predictions, we, we can make predictions. And whereas ants, they cannot do that easily. They had to be more aware of what's happening for them to change, but they cannot change many things around. So I just want to ask one last question before we get to the actual final question, just to really kind of zero in on specifically what you had mentioned is your focus in your research. You, you said you were focusing on pheromones, right? Yes. So do humans release pheromones and does the mechanism of pheromone uh, release in humans, if it exists, operate similar to ants? Like what's the relationship there? I don't think so. I, I do know that we produce pheromones. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, it's not as a strong cue as in ants. Mm -hmm. Because in ants, for example, the fact that the workers don't reproduce is because the queen produces pheromones that they can inhibit the ovary development in workers. So a human never will be able to do that to another human, right? Good. Yeah, that's so a good thing. So that, that's telling you a lot. And the <laughs> fact that they had to use pheromones to, to follow each other, to get the food. That, that means that the chemical cues are very strong in insects, if we compare with humans. But we share similarities of this uh, chemical communication, but the fact that we have evolved other ways of communication, I guess yeah. the chemical one is not as important as in other organisms. But yeah, yeah I mean, pheromones in ants is everything. 
the fer I mean, they have an alarm pheromone when this, uh, they are in danger. They just spell the pheromone and <laughs> the whole system know that there's time to be warning about danger or something like that. Yeah. I find it absolutely fascinating that there are these systems in place in these other species, these completely different organisms than us to communicate. But then, then I think about how we have language. And luckily, we don't have to communicate by spraying chemicals into the air. We can actually just kind of tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, watch out, there's an eagle coming in. You know, so I, I'm definitely not jealous of the ants in that I can use my words. I don't just need to, you know, spray some pheromones around. So. Yeah, I mean, I also glad that we, we have language and we're able to speak and communicate in different ways. The, uh, these mechanisms has, has been also successful since they have been doing this for many years, even before humans, they evolved millions of years ago. So it seems that it's working somehow for them. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, given that we have language and we are using it right now, let's keep using it for another minute. I just have my final question for you before we call it a day. Thank you so much, by the way, for coming on the podcast. This has been a very unique, very interesting episode. Biology is fascinating, and this is the first time we've had somebody come to speak with us about ants or any kind of insect, any kind of organism, really, other than humans or rats or monkeys. So this has been extra special. My final question for you, Anjali. If there were a thousand people listening to you right now, what would you tell them? Wow, that is a really nice question. Okay, something I will tell them as a grad student and student studying basic research is that it's, it's, it's good to be listened from men. I mean, it's, it's good to be listened. We like to share, we like to be able to communicate what, he, what we have been doing and not keeping this knowledge in a bubble. Because sometimes that happens when we are doing basic research. The information and the knowledge that we are generating is, is, is being out of the society. So I, I would like the people to listen and make questions and get in contact with us because I think one of the main roles uh, for us is to communicate, is to let you know as a society, like where uh, we have ants, those organisms are amazing. I can tell you a lot about them, you are gonna love them. So I think uh, that's the main, the main point is like, as a society, we, we, we need to try to listen the scientists and as a scientist, we also have to share those things. So we need that connection. So I, I yeah, that will be my, my, my message will be thanks for listening and I'm happy <laughs> to talk more about what I'm doing and share what that's I have been finding. That's awesome. Well, I definitely back this bi-directional nature of knowledge sharing. That's really why we're here today is so I can learn and people who are listening can learn and we can keep this discussion going. Would you like me to put your email in the description for this episode so people could reach out to you? Absolutely. Okay. I'm definitely going to do that then. So once again, thanks so much, Anjali, for coming on the podcast. Have an awesome day. Thanks for the invitation. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. 
Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.